During the rule of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. They were both righteous before God, blameless in their, obs- in their observance of all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to become pregnant and they both were very old. One day Zechariah was serving as a priest before God because his priestly division was on duty. Following the customs of priestly service, he was chosen by lottery to go into the Lord's sanctuary and burn incense. All the people who gathered to worship were praying outside during this hour of incense offering. An angel from the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of the incense. When Zechariah saw the angel, he was startled and overcome with fear. The angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give birth to your son, and you must name him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many people will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the Lord's eyes. He must not drink wine and liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will bring many Israelites back to the Lord their God. He will go forth before the Lord, equipped with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, and he will turn the disobedient to righteous patterns of thinking. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure of this? My wife and I are very old. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in God's presence. I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news to you. Know this, what I have spoken will come true at the proper time. But because you didn't believe, you will remain silent, unable to speak until the day when these things happen. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered why he was in the sanctuary for such a long time. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he gestured to them and couldn't speak. When he completed the days of his priestly service, he returned home. Afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. She kept to herself for five months, saying, This is the Lord's doing. He has shown his favor to me by removing my disgrace among other people. When Elizabeth Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then Mary said to the angel, How will this happen since I haven't had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's Son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman who was labeled unable to conceive is now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. Then the angel left her. Mary got up and hurried to a city in the Judean highlands. She entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. With a loud voice, she blurted out, God has blessed you above all women, 
and he has blessed the child you carry. Why do I have this honor that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Happy is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill the promises he made to her. My name is Megan. I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. I invite you to pray with me as we approach God's word this morning. God, on this week of joy and peace, we are beginning in many places. There are some of us here today, some of us not present today, that are carrying just overwhelming weights of grief. Maybe grief that's very fresh. Maybe grief that we've been carrying for a really long time. There are some of us who are here today carrying excitement, anticipation about some corner we are turning and what may be in store. There are others of us who are coming with a lot of anxiety and worry about what's around the corner. Will we be provided for? God, we pray for each other, however we are coming, whatever we are carrying that you would meet each one of us in the midst of that place. Being that name that you were called when you were born, Emmanuel, the God who was with us. We pray that this season, wherever we are, you would renew our joy, our peace, and our hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, Luke famously begins his story of the good news about Jesus with two unexpected encounters with God by two very different people. On on the one hand, we have Zechariah. He's older, he's male, he's married, he's a priest, a religious professional, in a culture when all of those things bought you a lot of status and respect. And on the other hand, we have Mary, She's young, she's single, she's female in a patriarchal world. She's not a professional anything. And so God sends the angel Gabriel to priest Zechariah to tell him he's about to become the very late in life father of a remarkable son. And Zechariah is so stunned that there's only one question that he can think to ask. And the question he stammers out is, how can I know that this is actually going to happen? Meanwhile, the same angel comes to teenage Mary, telling her that she's about to become the virgin mother of a remarkable son, and what falls out of her mouth is a strikingly different kind of question. How is this going to take place? One of these questions is a question of doubt, seeking signs. The other question is a question of faith, seeking understanding. I mean, the the girl comes out of this story glowing with honor. The priest comes out with mud on his face. And Luke, it's sort of like Luke is opening his gospel by saying, Jesus hasn't even been born yet, and already the world is turning upside down. The experts are falling and failing. The teenage girls are the ones seeing things clearly. 
Like that, that is Luke's opening declaration to Jesus. And all of it is true and all of it is a really key insight to the gospel of Luke. But what I actually want to do this morning is pause to say a word in defense of Zechariah. Um, Because here's the thing. Mary is young. Like 12, 13, 14, maybe 15 at the most. She's still at that age where the world still has this kind of shimmer of magic and mystery. The kind of age where people's life plan genuinely includes marrying Justin Bieber. Or becoming Mr. Booker or changing the world in some significant way. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, on the other hand, qualify for the discount on Denny's pancakes. They have laid all of their hopes and fears before God with tears for literally, like, decades. How many times? 10,000? 100,000? And they've heard and they've seen absolutely nothing. Now, Mary is the outlier in the Christmas story. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are more in the position of pretty much everybody else in first century Palestine. I mean, for for a full 2,000 years ago, God had promised to their ancestor Abraham that he was going to have a family that would become a great nation. A, A full millennium ago, God had promised their greatest King David that one of his descendants was going to sit on the throne of that nation forever. And 600 years ago, when that nation had been overrun by foreign powers, God had promised the prophet Isaiah that the nation would be freed and restored. And the Jewish people had held on to those promises. They'd touched them again and again until they wore the cover off. But almost six centuries had passed since that last promise was made. In 25 generations... That's more time than the Israelites lived in Egypt. It's more time than most uh, Europeans have known that North America exists. That's how long the people of Israel have been waiting to be rescued. That's how long they've been begging and pleading and praying with God for a homeland of their own, all while being traded back and forth between brutal empires like they were cheap Pokemon cards. And then one day, after 2,000 years, out of the blue, God sends an angel Gabriel to announce to Zechariah and to everybody else in Israel to put them on notice that all of their prayers are now suddenly going to be answered. I mean, frankly, it's no surprise if their first reaction is, seriously? Why now? I mean, Why now, after all this time? What changed from yesterday to today? Why should I believe that tomorrow will somehow be different? I mean, Zechariah's skepticism, I think, is perfectly understandable. The only question is, why is this story worth telling at all as the opening to the good news of Jesus? And to figure that out, to understand why this story serves as an introduction to Jesus, I think we have to back up a bit to a much earlier and older story than Zechariah's. One of the very first stories that is told in the entire Bible is the story of Abraham and Sarah, the great patriarch and matriarch of the Jewish people. 
And in the story, one night, Abraham, he's sitting outside his tent, gazing up at the stars, and all of a sudden, he hears the voice of God whispering to him. And God promises Abraham that he is going to have more descendants than stars that he can see up in the sky. The trouble is that just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, Abraham and his wife Sarah are elderly, they're childless, they've spent decades praying and trying. But the author of Genesis sums up Abraham's reaction to this big news that he is going to have all of these descendants like the stars by just saying this in Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Fast forward another thousand years, 2,000 years later, and one of Abraham's millions of descendants that now exist is sitting down and reflecting on these words, reflecting on Abraham's experience and on the promise God made Abraham. And this is what he says as he reflects back in this story. Romans chapter 4. As it is written, I have appointed you to be the father of many nations. That's from Genesis. So Abraham is our father in the eyes of God in whom he had faith. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that don't exist into existence. When it was beyond hope, Abraham had faith in the hope that he would become the father of many nations in keeping with the promise God spoke to him. This is how many descendants you'll have. Without losing faith, Abraham, who was nearly a hundred years old, took into account his own body, which was as good as dead, and Sarah's womb, which was dead. He didn't hesitate with the lack of faith in God's promise, but he grew strong in faith and gave glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. But the scripture that says it was credited to him wasn't written only for Abraham's sake. It was also written for our sake because it's going to be credited to us too. Now, what, what strikes me about this, these reflections from one of Abraham's descendants is that if you were to ask many people today, religious or not, Christian or not, like if there is a God, what does that God want most from human beings? almost everybody would tell you exactly the same thing. What, what does God want from humans? God wants us to be good. I mean, people can and, and we do disagree on what qualifies as good, God-loving behavior, but the general consensus is that if there were a God, what that God would want is for people to behave themselves. That would be God's core desire. Now, I think that is the assumption of most Christians I know, of most people I talk to. It's the assumption that I lived with for most of my, my life. And, and there's just one problem with that assumption for followers of Jesus. I mean, the one problem is that the first Christians, the people who learned about God from Jesus himself, passionately disagree with that answer. So what do the people who learn from Jesus actually think that God wants most from humanity? What do they think is first and foremost on God's priority list? 
Well, the answer to it is so simple and so straightforward and so clear that even after 2,000 years, we're still struggling with what to do with it. According to the eyewitnesses of Jesus, who learned about God from Jesus himself, what God wants most from humanity is simply this. God wants to be trusted. What God wants most from humanity is to be believed as a keeper of promises. And listen again to the end of this section from Romans 4. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised, and therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. But the scripture that says it was credited to him wasn't written only for Abraham's sake. It was written for our sake too, so that it could be credited to us too. How is righteousness defined here? It's defined by believing God. I mean, what is God's first priority? What is God looking for in friends? Not primarily people who are good, however we define good. God is looking for people who trust God is good, who trust that God has the power and the will to back God's words up. Now, I think that's really easy to say, but the thing that makes the promises of God really hard to talk about is that a lot of things have been claimed through the years about the promises of God that just aren't true. I mean, there is no promise of celebrity marriage or pro-athlete status. But maybe more to the point and more painfully, there's no promise of marriage at all. There's no promise that everybody's story ends like Zechariah and Elizabeth's story. There's no promise that you won't go to bed many nights with all kinds of hungers tearing through you. There's no promise that 2,000 years won't pass with the story still unfinished. Everybody wants to be a part of that generation that sees the king arrive. That would be awesome, right? But the majority of people won't be. The promises don't read like an Amazon wish list, and they certainly don't have the relentless efficiency of same-day delivery. And that's the difficulty. But there are some very real, very clear promises that come from the mouth of Jesus himself. So what are those? Like, what are the actual promises we're being asked to trust? Well, let me name just a few, starting here. The first promise is that whatever hunger, whatever grief we're feeling, it's, it may feel endless, but it's temporary. It has an end. It isn't going to be like this forever. And we may find in our experience, like the experience of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Israel, that that valley of the shadows is way, way longer. That road through the valley is much longer than we ever imagined or dreamed. But the promise is there's still a destination ahead. There's still a homecoming coming. There's a table prepared where everybody is going to get to eat until they're full. There's a kingdom where everyone is going to live free and clear with their own vine and orange tree. 
There's a house where everybody's going to have a room and a chair of belonging. There's a city where there are no locks or doors because there's no threat to safety. There's a world that doesn't need the sun because God's presence will be so bright. Everything, those hungers, all of that grief is a temporary phenomenon. And those, these kind of someday promises that come, they're, they're really important because sometimes, I don't know if you've been in these moments, I certainly have, like the someday promise is all that keeps you going, right? The only thing that helps you endure is the thought that what you were enduring is temporary. But at the same time, the, the road, this kind of long road, doesn't only need that kind of promise. We, we need promises along the way as well. So what are those? Well, here's one that Jesus gives in in Luke chapter 11. Jesus says this. I tell you, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. Whoever seeks finds. To everyone who knocks, the door is open. Which father among you would give a snake to your child if your child asked for a fish? If a child asked for an egg, what father would give the child a scorpion? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This isn't a a generic promise about asking. This is a very specific kind of promise. God will give the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks. Everyone, every time, no one in any circumstance will ever be denied, Jesus says, the company of God. No one in any circumstance will ever be denied the company of God. There's no need for perfect words. There's no need for some kind of long-winded argument to convince God to show up. You can use good words, you can use bad words, you can just scream, and God will be there. There's no longing, there's no hunger that you're ever going to have to endure by yourself. That there's no kind of dark valley that you're ever going to have to navigate alone, even if that valley is of your own making. That's one of the promises along the way. Here's another promise. No life that is committed to Jesus will ever be barren. John 15, 7 and 8. If you remain in me, Jesus says, and my word remains in you, ask for whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified when you produce much fruit and in this way prove that you are my disciples. Again, this is not a generic kind of promise. When Jesus says ask for whatever you want, he he's specifically ties it here to ask for whatever you want that is needed in order to be fruitful. Not everybody's story is going to be like Abraham and Sarah and Zechariah and Elizabeth. Not everybody is going to receive the miracle that they prayed for. Not everyone's professional life, not everyone's personal life will turn out the way that they dreamed it. But Jesus says no no matter what the circumstances of your life are, every follower of Jesus is going to be given a plot of soil and a pack of seeds to plant. Every disciple is going to be given the raw materials of meaning and purpose. Which means there is no life that is committed to Jesus that will not produce significant fruit. Every person who ties their legacy to Jesus' legacy will share a legacy that's lasting. 
You may not get the things you dreamed of, but every life can be fruitful and participate in something that will endure. And just one more promise. And I think this might be the most dangerous promise of all. From Matthew 17 and Matthew 21, this comes up several times. Jesus says, I assure you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, go from here to there, and it will, be, it will go. There will be nothing that you can't do. A little later, Jesus says, I assure you, if you have faith and don't doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, you will even say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the lake, and it will happen. If you have faith, you will receive whatever you pray for. Now, maybe more than anything else, this sounds like a blank check kind of promise, but most of us have lived long enough to know it doesn't actually work that way. And I don't, I don't know anyone who has received everything that they've prayed for. Many of the saints through Christian history have prayed with incredible faith for things they didn't receive. But I think what Jesus is doing here is he's making this kind of wonderful, dangerous statement of principle that because God is God... And because God is good, and because God hears prayers, there is no possibility and no impossibility that can be inherently ruled out. That's the statement of principle. Because God is God, and because God is good, and because prayers get heard, there's nothing that can be ruled out. I mean, that that passage we read earlier in Romans 4 is really clear about this. The kind of trust that God is looking for isn't blind. God is not looking for blind trust. The kind of trust that God is looking for does not deny reality. In fact, Romans is exactly the opposite. It faces reality head on, just like Abraham and Mary did. We are too old. I'm a virgin. Centuries have passed. These are true facts. The kind of trust that God is looking for sees the world with eyes open and acknowledges the obstacles, acknowledges the impossibilities as real and relevant to the situation. The kind of trust God is looking for does all of that. It simply maintains one other relevant piece of info. There is a God who made worlds with a word who planted life in dead wombs, who emptied tombs, and who isn't finished yet. There's a God who hears human voices and is moved by them. This God is able to act, and sometimes this God chooses to act at the moments we least expect. I mean, I am keenly aware at this point in my life, having that kind of hope is risky. Having that kind of hope is not without its pain because it means that sometimes like Elizabeth and Zechariah in Israel, we're going to sit through decades and even centuries of prayer, sometimes through generations, and not see the thing we were looking for. We're going to be confronted with all kinds of unanswerable questions like, why not yesterday or the thousand days before that? We might find ourselves in the position of Zechariah saying to ourselves, like, why on earth should tomorrow be any different from today? And the honest answer to that question is, it shouldn't be. Tomorrow should not be any different from today. 
but sometimes it just is. Because God, who is mysterious and patient, is also powerful and good. Tomorrow should not be any different than today, but because God is God, and because God is good, and because God hears prayer, sometimes it just is. I mean, what does God want most from us this Christmas? Just to be believed. Not to be believed cheaply or naively, not to be believed without questions or without doubts, not to be believed for nothing, but to be believed even amid those questions and doubts on the basis of past actions. To be believed on the basis of testimonies like Abraham and Sarah and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary, whose stories just suddenly turned for no reason at all except that God acted. God wants to be believed on the basis of thousands of years of promises remembered and remembered and eventually kept. That kind of dangerous light of hope still burns for people who are willing to risk holding it. The creator has created from nothing before. Life has come from barren soil. Tombs have emptied out. And I can't say how or why or when or why it happens and neither can anyone else. But I know that for me, in light of Jesus' promise of God's unrelenting goodness, I'm going to keep on knocking at the door. Because it isn't over until it's over. And even then, it's only just started. And that's what the story of Christmas is really about. Let's pray together. God, we bring to you our hungers, we bring to you our longings. We bring to you our stories that seem long since over. We ask for a fresh wave of your hope. Not a cheap hope, not a a naive hope, not one that denies the reality of where we are. not one that denies the impossibility of our circumstances. But one who hears and clings to promises long spoken and kept many times before in the moment least expected. Lord, where our ground feels barren, we give it to you. And we pray that you would provide what is needed for great fruitfulness. Where our faith feels weak, we offer you what we can and say we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Make something of this circumstance here. Something that is good and right and brings honor to you. Make something, God, of our impossibilities. Create new testimonies of your grace and your faithfulness. 
be for us, be for the generations after us what you have been for thousands of generations before us. Surprising, (laughs) mysterious, but also good beyond what we can measure. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.